You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. If you've been to my home, Elena and I, this is my wife down here in the camel jacket. Um, if you've been to our home, you know the Carls love and have a small obsession with old houses. Our current home is nearing 100 years old, but we've kind of lived in a couple older ones along the way. And about a decade ago, we were moving into what I thought was a beautiful home, um, but it was kind of falling apart and it was way over 100 years old. And it was just an exciting day. Moving is nervous, moving's exhausting, moving's exciting, moving's all the things. And it was going so well. We were crushing it from beginning to end. But by crushing it, I mean I had to move the washing machine in. And when I got to the washing machine, I realized this door, the front door, is not a standard size door. It could fit a person in, but it could not fit a modern washing machine. Actually, the door had been invented before washing machines. This was not a standard door. And so me and my best friend were trying to get this washing machine through the door. And what we tried was basically just smashing it into the door frame. And as that didn't work, you know, you can only try that so many times. You're like, oh, flip it, pivot, pivot, turn sideways. It, it didn't work. We came up with another poor idea. That sounded good at the time. I said, I have a crowbar. We're just going to take the frame off this door. We're just start prying every, take the door off the hinges, frames off the door. We're going to make this door bigger one way or another. And then we smashed it through again. It eventually damages the washing machine, definitely damages the door. We're high-fiving as we get the driver, the dryer through, which is lighter and sweaty. It had started to rain full of lead paint chips. We are high-fiving until we look back at the door and go, well, we made quite a mess. No, well, we had to fix it. Wasn't that okay? A narrow door is a real problem if you try to bring things in the house that don't fit. A narrow door is a real problem if you try to bring things in the house that don't belong. When Jesus is asked by the crowd, he goes, hey, well, will many be saved or few? Or how's this going to work out? How's, how's salvation work? How's it all going to play out, Jesus? Because there's these thousands of people following you, but they're more fans than followers. And then you have your, like, your core team of like you know 12 disciples plus maybe 100 other people. And people are just starting to go, there's a lot going on. People are being told to repent. They're rejoicing in God's miracles. And a guy just goes, hey, how's this going to play out? Are a lot of people going to heaven? Or not? And Jesus typically doesn't answer the question asked, but answers the question we should be asking. And he tells them about a door. Verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And the word here, strive, it's important to know a little more about it. It's agonizomai. It's where we get the English word agony. You can kind of feel it right there and how it's spelled in Greek. And it means the same thing as strive would mean. It means to struggle forward. It means to require effort, focus, even suffering to accomplish. And Jesus means it in two senses here. 
He says, strive away from the world. Strive away from the fleeting pleasures of sin and temptation. Strive away from worldly values. Strive away from even your family's values if they don't align with Jesus's. Strive away from any religion that's not leading you straight to me. And in the second way, strive towards Jesus. That you will need to make a commitment to go through this door. You're not going to drift into the door. You're not going to fall through the door. You're not going to wander into the door. But there's a door that you may strive in one way away from something, but then strive also towards it. And Jesus is describing with this picture the idea of repentance from sin and faith towards Christ. And Charlie did a wonderful job last night talking about repentance, telling us that repentance is more than saying we're sorry to God and others. It's more than that. It's, it's hopefully not less than that. You know, saying sorry is a, is a good start always. Um, but biblically, repentance is shown through a couple of words and images. And to understand those words and images a little bit makes this doorway make even more sense. See, biblical repentance first is to agree with God, to see your behavior and see it how God sees it. It's to agree with him. That's what confession is. When we see our sin and we actually see it for sin, we are agreeing with God first. The second biblical picture is to cast off sin, to drop it. Drop it like we have a bad habit in our culture, you know? Kill sin. Kill sin or it'll be killing you, as John Owen said. To let go, to forsake it. So we agree with God. And then we agree that, man, this thing is gross. That it's actually bad. That it's actually harming me and everyone around me. It's like nuclear waste. You can't hold on to it. You can't store it. It has to go. But the third biblical picture kind of builds on these two, that there's actually a turning from sin, from what we have our faith, our trust, our hope in, taking it out of sin and into God. That there's a physical turning of the soul that blows our minds to let go of one thing and put our hope in God instead. And that makes it see that biblical repentance is more than momentary guilt or sadness, but it's a turning to God and walking in a new direction. It's a turning, a turning from sin and turning to God to walk in a new direction. But the key here in the story is the door is narrow. If I thought the door to this 120-year-old house is narrow, ancient doors and ancient homes would be tiny to us. Not tiny to them. People were smaller, homes are smaller, but they'd be tiny to us. And Jesus is saying, it's not just these tiny doors that everyone had to duck in. My door is even smaller than that door that you're gonna have to duck and probably turn sideways to more or less kind of wiggle your way into my house, into the kingdom. That going through the narrow door will take that striving, there is going to be an uncomfortable pressing on you that you must intentionally go through the door. And you definitely can't bring your washing machine worth of idolatry with you. You can't bring it in. It's not going to fit. And you might be like, Justin, I don't, I don't see anything about idolatry right here. And it's important to understand the connection between sin and idolatry. Because the washing machine doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. Idols don't belong in the kingdom of God. And behind every sin is an idol. 
We don't just sin randomly. It comes from a place. It comes because we actually love, trust, or worship something more than Jesus. I'll show it to you. Just a couple examples. We usually don't just lie to tell lies, right? It's, it's like too much work to have to think up a creative lie. That, 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 that's a work to do. Why, well, why do we lie? Well, we get a lot of reasons. But a lot of times we lie because we want someone's approval more than the humility of telling an embarrassing truth. Maybe it's to manipulate, maybe it's some other stuff, but the idol would be approval. I, I want the approval of others. Therefore, telling the truth out, and I'll tell a lie. Another example, we don't just lust or commit adultery. When we think of the idol behind lust or adultery, there's pleasure or approval with sexual immorality. And we believe that what is in that idol is greater than the goodness, pleasure, and joy offered in God. We say this fleeting thing has more hope in it than our actual God. And so it's not just the sin, it's the idol behind the sin. We aren't just greedy or struggle with generosity. We have an idol of money. The deeper down, we believe earthly money is a safer bet than the steadfast love of God. And if you're saying, man, I want to grow deep, I want to get deep in my Christianity, your depth of your Christianity begins when you start asking, why did I sin? It's good to just turn and repent, you know, not, not going to hear that here to say, keep sinning. No, but if you want to go deeper, it just takes one why. And if that doesn't help, just ask another why. If that doesn't help, ask another why. If that doesn't help, ask another why. You might have stuff coming up from wounds in your heart to things in your story to long patterns of sin, but the whys will take you somewhere. If you're like, man, I don't even know how to do this. Grab a friend and maybe help them, have them ask you. Maybe just explain your heart to them and keep asking the why. You have to let go of sin to walk through the door. The picture of repentance fits perfectly here. You have to agree I have a washing machine. It's not getting through the door. You don't get to crowbar Jesus's door. You can't pull a, a hasty, wild Justin that had a repair cost. Um, that doesn't work. We got to agree. We got to drop the washing machine. And then we're physically going to have to turn our body and squeeze through that door coming just as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up. We don't have to fix ourselves, but we do have to let go of the sin. I cannot hold on to sin and Jesus at the same time. I just can't. You can't move through the door with both. And I remember being here at the beginning of my Christian walk because deep down, I wanted to stay cool, popular Justin. Maybe you don't believe I was ever cool or popular, but at least I thought I was. And I really wanted to hang on to it. I really wanted to keep being the homecoming king type. I really wanted to keep being the captain of the football team type. I really wanted to keep being this certain person and all the behaviors attached to it. So deep down, I would keep telling God, like, Jesus, he kind of looks attractive, but like, man, I'm going to lose some approval points. And I've been kind of living my whole life to, to get those going. I, I got like a tiny mountain is what I actually had. But in my mind, it was Everest. Lord, you're asking me to trade the world. Jesus is saying, yes, exactly. I am asking you to trade the whole world for what will it profit you to lose your soul. And for me, the day that finally I came to surrender, go, I think you're worth more. I'm just gonna trust that John 10.10 10 is right, that you've come to give me life and give it to me abundantly. I'm just gonna make the swap. 
And I see that was the moment I went through a door. And I found out on the other side of the door that I was approved of in Christ. And his didn't go up and down on my performance. That he loved me from beginning to end every day. Jesus' door is narrow. In fact, the door is so narrow that Jesus claims he is the only door or road to God. Jesus tells us this. He says, I am the way. I am the truth, I am the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, for anyone to say it, you'd have to be a megalomaniac unless it's true. But if it's true, of course he's the only door. Of course he's the only way. Jesus is no wise man. He's not just a good teacher. He's not a rebel for whatever cause we want to put him up for. He's the Lord of the universe, and he's the only Savior from sin. And since there's only one narrow door, we must strive to enter. At the airlines, you can pay extra to bring some bags on the plane, but Jesus is taking no bags on the plane. He says, you're going to have to get on the plane without your bags, no matter who you are, no matter your status. We cannot follow Jesus and insist on, his, and insist on our ways because he's king of the kingdom. We can't come to his kingdom and say, no, I'm in charge. It doesn't work that way. The king's in charge. And we belong to Jesus's kingdom, but our sin has no place here. It's forgiven, but our challenge of our Christian life is to forsake it as we turn to Christ and to continue to forsake it as we go. You will sin as a Christian. You will sin daily as a Christian. You will sin weekly as a Christian. You will grow awareness that sin is not just what you do or you say, but things in your heart too. So it's an ongoing process of forsaking sin. It's already forgiven, but this is the truth. The way in the kingdom and your growth in the kingdom is the same thing. In Luke 3, John the Baptist told us, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So Christian, you can pick your head up. I know you've sinned this week. I know I've sinned this week. But I can bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The expectation of our Lord isn't a perfect life. He already has one in Jesus. He knows we're sinners. He knows we're weaker than we think. But that we can come to him and find endless grace, approval that never ends, a God who's in control, a God who comforts his people, a God who's powerful enough to do the things that actually need to get done in our heart to survive. And there's a sister passage to this found in Matthew 7. It goes like this. He expands the idea. He says, enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Jesus sympathizes with us that following Jesus is hard. It's just nice to say it out loud. If you feel like you're having a hard time following Jesus, Jesus agrees. It's going to get very rocky for him. It's been rocky. It's going to get super rocky on the hill called Skull outside of Jerusalem. If it's going hard for you, it's hard for two reasons. A, we love sin. We don't like to say it, but boy, we love sin. We have a whole lifetime leading up to following Christ of loving sin and being in the same patterns and the same patterns to break from that life is very hard and it might take a long time to get all the way down into here. Second reason it's real hard is the world is broken. We just live in a broken place, man. And living a humble life of repentance, admitting I'm wrong about most of life and I have to relearn everything in light of who Jesus is, it's hard. 
To stand up for injustice in a difficult, unjust world is hard. To sit with broken people, to have compassion of stories that are just so difficult, that is hard work to show up in love over and over and over. Leaving these long-held patterns of sin is ultimately freeing, but the fight is taxing. It's a strive to have your relationships all change and shift because maybe they don't agree with you following Jesus. These are not easy things, but the way of the world is wide and easy. It will tempt you endlessly. This is like a trail going up a steep mountain, but there's a way to just go back down the mountain and it's wide and easy. It will gently lull you off the trail following Jesus. So you just come on down. Anyone hikes Ruffner here? There's a trail just like that. Like at the end of the trail, there's just this wide, easy paved trail down the mountain. All the other trails go like this, but there's one that'll just coast you on down. You'll be at the parking lot in no time. And that's the temptation of us to say, man, could it get easier? Is there another trail? Jesus is saying there isn't another trail. That the narrow trail is the right trail because the problem is that easy worldly trail will drop off a cliff one day. It doesn't lead to the parking lot. It leads to a cliff. And Jesus isn't trying to keep anyone out of the kingdom. In fact, he's saying the kingdom is wide open, just the door is narrow. Look what the Lord told us in Luke 12. He says, do not fear, little flock. If you're worried about missing the kingdom, if you're worried about like, what does all this mean? This is, this is a panic inducing. Don't fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God delights in giving you the kingdom. He's not playing keep away. He's not playing hide and go seek. He's not trying to make it an unknowable mystery. He is showing us in Christ, the king of the kingdom and inviting us to him. But how does it work then? If some are trying to enter and can't, how, how does this all work? Why is he teaching these things? Well, look at verse 32. The how is just tucked right in this verse. This verse could be 10 sermons. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Deep down, everybody is looking for salvation, whether they know it or not. Everyone is seeking to enter, whether they know it or not. Every pursuit of sin in our life and every pursuit of every good thing is looking for a satisfaction of our soul that never quite gets there. That's what we're looking for in our sin. That deep down here, we would be satisfied with deep peace and joy. It doesn't work. So Jesus is saying, in fact, kind of everyone's looking for this door, but in brokenness, they're looking in all the wrong places. And it says some won't be able. And that word means able connotes strength. That someone won't have the strength or ability to enter on their own. And that's the beautiful truth of Christianity, that no one enters the kingdom of God on their own. No one has the strength to lift the door. No one has the strength to even find the door. And if we even found the door, we wouldn't crouch and humble ourselves to crawl in this thing. Instead, you're only getting through the narrow door by God's grace. And you may hear the word grace all the time. There's the wonderful grace wood. It's a name. You say grace at a meal. But what grace is, my favorite definition, a beautiful biblical definition of grace is the one-way love and forgiveness of God. 
And that makes it a real gift. We've all had a gift that wasn't a gift. (laughs) God gives a real gift to just say it's yours. He paid for it. He sent it. He gives it for free. The one way love and forgiveness of God. And that's the only way anybody gets through the door. No one's works are good enough to get through the door. No one is healthy enough, smart enough, politically astute enough, ethical enough, successful enough. No one is. God's strength is only thing getting you through the door. God's grace, when it's at work in us, you can tell because you begin to hate your sin and you strive through the door in love for Jesus. You really want to worship him. You start to want to be with him. You want to obey him. And it makes you want to forsake sin at the same time. That's what God's grace is doing in your heart. It's making you pursue a holy God and start to fear and love him. In Luke 18, a man will refuse to follow Jesus. We'll get there in a couple weeks. He refuses to strive for salvation. And specifically, this guy's issue is he will not let go of trusting his great wealth in order to follow Jesus. He just says no. And look how Jesus and the disciples process this out. Jesus saw this, a rich man leaving sad. And he said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Camels don't get through the eyes of needles. That'd be the point there. They're not going to get through. The disciples go, wait a minute, are you saying all rich people are going to hell? Those who heard this said, well, who in the world can be saved? And Jesus replied, What's impossible for people is possible for God. It's grace or nothing. Your striving is from grace to grace. Do you have an active role in it? Absolutely. He wouldn't give us a present active verb to strive, to push, to agonize through unless we weren't going to be responding to God's grace but it's God's grace from beginning to end. The kingdom is open. All are invited, but the door, it's narrow. That striving is possible by God and by grace. And I want you to just test your heart here as we're kind of getting in and diving into some deep things. A, if this teaching leads you to despair and worry, it's because deep down you probably think the path to heaven is still in your strength. As if I'm talking about this and it just feels like the weight of the world is piling up on you, that's a sign you're not understanding, that you're grabbing some but not the whole. Because it's true in part, yeah, you don't have the strength to get there. You don't. But B, if the sermon is music to your ears and you're starting to feel relieved and there's a hope in Jesus starting to swell, then friend, you're getting it. That the gospel is by grace or it's no gospel at all. The only good news is that God saves sinners, not that we save ourselves. You are starting to receive the gospel deeper and learning to strive with God that is hating sin and loving Jesus. Church, you belong to God, but your sin does not. 
Luke 3 tells us this tells us this growth is the same for Christians, that we love Christ and hate our sin. The, and he goes on to tell us more about this parable. He goes on to tell us more that the door of the kingdom is only opened by the master, so he must know you. It comes across at first of the door shut, like we need to time it right to get through the door. But the emphasis then quickly shifts that it's actually about knowing the guy who opens the door in the parable. That first, it's narrow, but second, there's a master who opens the door for you. And this is what folks mean by a personal relationship with Jesus, that you make a decision to follow, to follow Jesus, that an intellectual acknowledgement of Jesus is not enough, and being around the church is not enough, but rather we must believe ourselves to know and be known by God. And Jesus highlights this repentance as key again in verse 36. He says, then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and, we taught and, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I do not know you or where you are from. Away from me, all you evil doers. To continue in evil means not to know Jesus. That very simply, he teaches through this ongoing story of the door and now the master, that an unchanged Christian is not a Christian. And that's what our baptism celebration is here at Citizens and globally all for the history of Christianity. That's why it's public and Jesus commands baptism, that we're declaring that God is killing my sin as we go under the water. That's under the water to die to our old self. And we rise out of the water showing our repentance that God has given us life and raised us now to walk in light of Christ. Walk perfectly? No. Walk with God? Absolutely. And so I'm telling you, if God has given you the life in the gospel, don't delay. I urge you to obey him in every way, including in baptism, and give God great glory. But then the story shifts once again to this banquet of God in verse 29. And the people will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and recline at the table of the kingdom of God. Everyone's going to hit this feast at the end of time. And behold, some that are last will be first, and some that are first who will be last. And Jesus is telling a mostly Jewish crowd that being ethnically Jewish is not enough. Just an everyday Jew in their culture would say, hey, I'm, I'm ethnically Jewish, I'm faithful enough, I'm kind of doing what, you know, rabbi tells me, I'm definitely going to heaven. And Jesus say, ah, maybe not, apart from faith in me. And in fact, faith in me means Anyone can go to heaven, whether you're ethnically Jewish or not, that salvation is in Christ alone. But conversely, anyone who refuses Jesus will be left out of the kingdom of God altogether. But this means everyone's welcome, but only through faith in Jesus. And becomes this moment to hear the gospel even deeper, fam. That people from the east and the west, the north and the south, will all belong at God's table. That means there's a spot for you. We are the people of the east, the north, the south, the west. None of us grew up in Israel. We are these people. He's talking about us, which means there's an empty chair waiting for you, reserved for you in heaven at the banquet of God, at the end of time. And it's waiting for you, that you have a moment to strive to trust God for your seat, forsake your life of sin. And do you believe deep down you belong? 
Do you believe deep down you belong to God? Well, my family was going just through a lot in high school. Uh, I spent a wild amount of time uh, with my best friend's family. Awesome family. Let me stay with them a lot. And they um, loved on Friday night to go to middle-class fancy restaurants. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Red Lobster, the OG Olive Garden, fancy like Applebee's on a date night. A lot of that. A lot of that. And he had a big family. So we, we would get a big old table. It was a sweet moment. It was a moment that, you know, I, I really relished. I really loved being with them on Friday nights. It was amazing to be at the table. I would get the menu and then I would panic because I had little to no money. And I knew that the father would probably pay for me, but I would order the cheapest thing on the menu for years, just hoping to be like a dirty, unnoticed object in the family who just happened to find a seat there. Even though I would offer to pay and he would say, I'm not paying, like I ain't charging a high schooler to be with my family. Even though he would assure me, even though he invited me, even though I was staying the night at their house, even though they talked about me as one of the family, even though they loved me, even though they helped me with a zillion different things, deep down, I could not get over the fact that I didn't really believe I belonged. That my last name was different, that my story was different, and I was an invited guest. But one day that changed after about a year or two. We're walking in the parking lot, and the father pulled me aside over another fresh round of like, hey, I'll pay for mine, like split up the check or, you know, whatever confidence I had at that age to try to do that. And he probably was, you know, done with my squabbling at the end of every Friday night. And he pulled me aside, and he said, Justin, as long as you're with me, you're part of my family. I'm always going to pay for your meals. And you can order whatever you want. I really don't care. I just care about you. And he didn't use the word belong that day. But what Jesus was teaching me through this kind man was that I actually could belong to God. He was priming the heart of what was a broken boy trying to become a man didn't know what his responsibility and what he should do anymore. But boy, I wanted to belong. And then one day I found out I did. And it was because he was kind, not because I got it right. How much greater is our God? He's not saying, you got it right. Welcome home. He's saying, I love you. The door's open. It's narrow. You can't bring that in but it's open to you because I love you. And as wonderful as that dad was to me, Jesus is an even better friend to us. And I want to prove it to you. This is a little bit of a complex passage, but it's one of my favorite in the New Testament. Look at verse 31. Hang in deep with me. At that very hour, some of the Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here. Herod wants to kill you. 
It's a real threat. He's a local Jewish leader. He's a jerk. He killed uh, Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. It's a real threat. And he said to them, Jesus, go tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Jesus is 0% scared of Herod. He calls him a fox, a sly, clever creature who's also vicious. What kind of king is Jesus? Why can you trust him? He's a king who fears no one. Jesus knows foxes run the world. This is not surprising news when they say Herod's about. But that's why Jesus is here casting out demons and healing. Jesus poetically and predi- poetically predicts his death that he'll die and rise after three days, letting everyone know that he's not ducking any of the foxes of this world. Instead, he's actually come to die at our foxy hands and bring us home. What kind of king is Jesus? He's a king that dies for his people. Who ever heard of a king who willfully dies for his enemies? Jesus is the better king of every story you've ever heard. He pays for our seat at the table with his blood. It's Jesus who left his throne in heaven so that we could swap seats to have a spot at the table of God. Jesus is alone on the cross so that we can belong to the family of God. Listen to our warrior, poet, king, prophet, Jesus, as the whole gospel lives right here. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you weren't willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. There will be no celebration when Jesus comes. There's no surprise ending where everyone embraces him. I tell you, you will not see me until the day. You'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A few will chant it when he comes in. For Jesus is referencing one day I'll come and all will see. See, Jesus is the king who cares for the lost. A lot of us think God is done with you when you sin. A lot of us believe deep down, I've sinned, I've done too much, I've done it again. Therefore, God must be done with me. But listen to this text. Jesus isn't done with you at all. Jerusalem hasn't repented in a thousand years And Jesus is marching towards it with tears in his eyes. He doesn't leave it to rot and die. He's walking towards the sinner. He's walking towards the pain. The Jerusalem that's been killing God's prophets, God's messengers, the writers of the Bible for hundreds of years. And what does God do? Let's send his own son to march to the city. A son that's mocked and forewarned and undeterred, he enters the whole holy city to die for us. He doesn't run away. 
So when you sin, God's not done with you. Instead, he's walking towards you. In your sin, God's actually coming undone in tears. He doesn't celebrate our sin by no means. It grieves his heart. But this is our king, the one who weeps over us, wishing to gather us like tiny chicks as a mother hen in a world full of foxes. Foxes kill chickens. They are ruthless killers. They'll kill as many as they can. This is a a deep insight from an urban farmer pastor. (laughs) You know, deep insight right here. The fox will eat them all. And to trust in this world for salvation anywhere else, for deep satisfaction anywhere else, is to be like a chick away from the hen. It's just a matter of time before you're picked off by the fox. The chicks are defenseless. The hen will die for the chicks. That's how that interaction goes down. Every idol in our life is a fox in the end. It's sly, it's clever, and it's killing you. Jesus longs for us to belong to him only. He's a jealous God. He compares our relationship to him most often to a marriage, a relationship. He doesn't want you to have any other lovers. He wants you to just love him because he loved you first. He loves you best. And he loves you always. Jesus is standing in the parking lot of your life convincing you to take the seat and the dinner is on him forever. Jesus declares Jerusalem forsaken. They won't embrace the Savior for the most part. When he comes again and is blessed, he'll do it as a just judge. Jesus is the king who will judge fairly in the end. But today, if you hear his voice, I urge you to enter the narrow door by faith in Jesus and be saved. If you're a long-time believer, I urge you to consider that God marches towards you with tears in his eyes at your sin. That the worst thing we can do is go hide our sin under a bush or a basket or, or somewhere else, but rather bring it to the only one who can help. He walks towards us, not away. Jesus is not scowling at you when you sin, but he's grieved. But would you trust him? Would you trust him this day, this week, this year, instead of getting the washing machine on the dolly again and trying to ram it through the door? You know it won't work. It never did, it never is, it never will. Whatever it is. Christian maturity is having and holding an accurate picture of God, including his emotions toward you, in front of you, in the front of your mind all the time question I ask people sometimes when we do care discipleship is if I took a picture of God's face right now, what would be on the picture? Is it a God who's here to, here to strike you down as a member of the family? Or is it God that loved you but is also grieved at the sin? Because that's a God who longs to embrace you again. You can keep growing. Anything can be forgiven. That's what God does all the time. And you might think, how can simply repenting and believing make such a difference, Justin? 
You don't understand. I got real people I need to apologize. I got real real atonements I need to make. I got real real things I got to do. I've, I've blown it in some ways that I can't get back. Well, that's how Jesus' kingdom work, works. The beginning of this passage, it starts out, they says, hey, the kingdom's like a seed that becomes a huge, beautiful tree. That Jesus' kingdom starts small but becomes very great. One decision towards Christ pushing through the door, who knows what it leads to next in your heart and your life. But I know the easy way leads to destruction. I know the narrow way leads to life. Jesus also tells it in other ways, like if you take a pinch of leaven and throw it into 50 pounds of flour, it all becomes beautiful bread dough, ready to be made into something beautiful when it was worthless before. And in that way, excuse me, Jesus' kingdom It's tiny in its beginning, but it's transformative. It's going to work through the whole world, including every little area of your life. That the garden of your heart, as we often describe, he's going to till all the soil and plant all new things. You might have to pull some thorn bushes first. It may be more than we think, but he's faithful and he's a good farmer. Your faith today Place it in the king. It may seem like a tiny action, but your life will change because your eternity has changed. Because of Jesus, you belong to God. So forsake your sin and find your forever home in Christ the risen.